Happy new moon creatures. It is a chilly day at the end of June out here in the Willamette Valley. We just got through a heat wave and oh, 70 degree day feels like blessed relief. I know the locals here are going to complain that it's too cold. <laughs> You're tired of it always being cold, but coming from such a hot place like I have, oh, this just soothes a sunburned part of my soul. I hope I never get tired of it. It's cloudy and lush here at the park. It's just starting to dry up enough for the grass to brown, but there's still so much green coming through this place. Little wildflowers everywhere. It's a beautiful day. Little spots of sunshine peeking through and warm in my face. I'm glad you're here with me. Last lunar month, I introduced you guys to my core practice, what I call the visitation. This whole journey of sharing this practice started with a friend who was going through this as well. And I sat down and was like, oh gosh, how do I codify this? How do I talk about it? How do I guide somebody through this? You know, this has just been sort of an intuitive personal thing that I've been doing um, for a while. And so I had to kind of think about, you know, like how do you, how do you share your inner workings? How do you do that with somebody? And that first time, oh gosh, this was an age ago, that first time that I guided my friend through it and we got to the place where you're engaged with your shadow, they've arrived in the safe place, in the meeting place, you know, respects have been paid, and you ask them if they're willing, if your shadow is willing, to step aside for just a second and let you see what they're protecting. That day, with my friend, with myself, and now with many other people who have helped through this process, who have guided in their first visitation, often see the same thing. You know, it's a little bit different, of course, for each one of us. But most frequently what I've heard is that when the shadow steps aside, and shows you what they're protecting just for a moment, we often see a child. Now that first time I guided a friend through the visitation and she saw the child instantly, she thought she was making it up. Um, you know, and I, I've run into that too, where you see this child, a scared, lonely, sad child, maybe an angry child, hurt though, no doubt. And the brain's defense mechanisms start kicking in. You start thinking about, oh gosh, like I'm just making this up. This isn't real. Like I think I'm just putting something here uh, because we want to avoid our pain. We want to avoid our suffering. And that inner child holds that pain. We've all heard about the inner child. That's something that I think has kind of reached popular consciousness now. Um, we're hearing more about shadow work. People are starting to gain a little bit of awareness too. But one thing that we don't really talk about is the relationship between our inner child and our shadow. Um, and these are, I really think, two sides of a coin. Um, they are deeply related to each other. It is unsurprising to me that when we ask the shadow to step aside, to give us a moment of trust, what they show us 
is a part of ourselves from childhood that's still holding on to some terrible hurt. Now, it might not be hurts that if they were suffered as an adult would be unbearable, or we might, it might make that even easier sometimes to dismiss that pain. But when you're a child, when your mind and your body have not yet fully developed, when you're still dependent on caregivers uh, for all your resources and protection, even if those caregivers aren't actually equipped to give you those things, you're still dependent on them. The traumas, the strikes, the blows, the neglects, the abuses can hit so much harder, are so much more likely to overwhelm the nervous system and for us to be unable to correctly process our experiences. So the thalamus breaks them into pieces, scatters them through the psyche, and stores them for reprocessing later. Well, so (laughs) we've been talking about the shadow and kind of raising awareness that Really what we're saying is we're looking at the thing that we can't see. The shadow is the unseen part of our nervous system. The things that are maybe too painful for us to look at head on, that we have to tuck away just to function, just to kind of like get through our life. Well, so when we talk about the inner child, there's similarly a physical correlate that's happening. When you think about your inner child, and take a second right now, and think about your inner child, make a little space for them. Uh, Inside of that meeting place, you know, we can create a safe play space for the inner child to express themselves. What you see and what you feel when you engage with your inner child is the internal subjective experience of the action of a specific part of your brain, the amygdala. Now, the amygdala is a little almond-shaped part of the brain, deep, deep in old structures, right? So this is in uh, an evolutionarily old part of the brain. Um, the amygdala helps us process our emotions, specifically things like uh, fear, anger, sadness, and pleasure, joy, you know, the highs and lows that we watch toddlers go through, right? They are pure amygdala, um, like uncut, rampant amygdala. And so when we're working with our inner child, what we're actually doing is in the, in the subjective space of our mind, we are engaging with the action of the amygdala. I found an article when I was doing research for this talk that kind of blew me away, and, but it makes so much sense when I think about it. But they found that um, the neurons, that there are neurons in your amygdala that never actually age. They're in place physically as though you were still a child in your brain for your entire life. Now that's not true in every part of the brain. Other regions of the brain have a period where they have like developmental neurons, you know, neurons from our youth that ultimately get replaced or are, there's no sign of them by the time we reach adolescence or young adulthood. Uh, But in the amygdala, a little piece of our child brain is preserved forever. It's still operating right inside of there. That amygdala is also responsible for our fight and flight response. So there's a level of self-preservation that's built into it. One of the things when I talk to my friends who carry childhood trauma, you know, which is like, hey, what up creatures? (laughs) That's a lot of us. 
Um, one of the things that we fail to realize is that from an evolutionary point of view, children, children are incapable, literally, literally, the brain cannot do this. They are incapable of viewing their caregivers as a threat. Our survival is so dependent on our caregivers. We are so fragile and we need so much support as we grow up, as we develop. That evolutionary, we, did not de we do not develop the capacity to look at these people at, as a threat. Even an abusive caregiver is better for the survival of the child than no caregiver at all. And so your neural pathways, when you're little, your amygdala cannot see your caregiver as a threat. So often when we grow up in neglectful or abusive homes, we blame ourselves. You know, that's what the kid does. The kid thinks it's their problem, that there's something wrong with them. You know, how many stories have we heard of children of divorce who think it was them that caused it? You know, um, the way that children sinkhole family crises uh, and struggles onto themselves. It's just because that pain has to go somewhere. They have to attribute it to something. They have to make sense of it somewhere along the way. Often what'll happen for kids when they experience things like this, even if it's not an abusive caregiver, sometimes we just, you know, a family hits hard times and there's struggle and there's stress and the kid is, that amygdala is a sponge for all of that, right? Just picking up on everything all the time. These little kiddos blame themselves. They think it's them. And often will form negative beliefs about the self in that moment. And those beliefs will persist into adulthood. These are the roots of shame, worthlessness, guilt, fear, anxiety, the, the belief that one isn't worthy of love, of compassion, that they are fundamentally bad in some way. I know so many adults who still walk with these crippling negative self-beliefs that were born from a moment of crisis, a moment of fear, a moment of neglect or abuse in childhood. And the brain just sort of filed it where it needed to file it because we are just getting through. You know, we are surviving the moment. We are going to make it to adulthood in the hope that somewhere along the way we'll come back around and reprocess these things. But they just had to be stored so we could survive the moment. If your brain did this, I want you to tell your brain what a good job it did. How, how powerful it really was to survive those moments when you were so little, when you were so confused or scared when you weren't getting your needs met by the people who were meant to care for you. Your brain did an incredible thing to help you get through a hard moment before you really should have been expected to care for yourself in that way. And I understand that the fallout from that moment can be very painful for a really long time. You know, it doesn't really... The system doesn't really consider our subjective experience of the system, you know, right? It's just keeping you alive. If we had all come up in an age where we had a culture that prized our well-being, a society that gave us the tools that we needed and the support that we needed 
to make sure that we could all flourish and thrive. We might have norms and practices that in our adulthood would help us come back through these spaces, return to memories that weren't correctly processed and reprocess them in the care of our family, our friends, our shaman. But we live in a different age, in a different world. So we haven't come up with these tools. It's not baked in yet, yet. I think we're working on it. One of the things about the amygdala, this is something my therapist told me, it kind of blew my mind, um, is that the amygdala can't be told. The amygdala can only learn through experience. It's only through actually doing stuff, um, and embodying things, acting things out that the amygdala can learn. You know, you might feel, um, let's take a fear. Oh, okay, I'll take one from, from my life here. I have a fear of heights. I kind of forget sometimes that I have a fear of heights and I keep trying to like get up on high places and then my knees start shaking and my heart starts beating. I'm like, oh yeah, gosh, I'm terrified of this moment. I can't talk myself out of that. I can't. And I try to, I try to pep talk myself, you know, I can't tell myself to not be afraid. I can't tell my amygdala to shut off. But when, <laughs> when Brett and I went down to Costa Rica and we signed up to do suspension bridges, do a, a walk through suspension bridges, I don't think I really understood what I was signing myself up for. Um, and every bridge was longer and higher up than the last. And I couldn't even have another person be on the bridge because they would shake it. And I was so scared my legs were gonna crumple underneath me. And so I would guard the back and I'm like stopping other tourists from going through. They were so sweet. Um, and I'm there walking hand over hand, one at a time, one foot in front of the other, tunnel vision to the other side of these bridges, saying this mantra that I, to this day I say, I go, safe and practice exposure to fear-inducing stimuli. Safe and practice exposure to fear-inducing stimuli. I'm like quivering. <laughs> that experience, that lived experience, though, completely reframed a lot of my fear of heights. Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm still not going to go bungee jumping. <laughs> like, I'm still not, I'm not there yet. But climbing a ladder doesn't make my legs shake anymore. You know, like being uh, on a cliff or on a, on a, we've gone on other bridges since then and being able to stand on the bridge and even look over the edge, I can do that now. Because I gave myself a real lived experience that addresses that fear that's stored in my amygdala. I don't really know where the fear of heights came from. I don't know its origin and I don't really need to. I don't, I, because even if I could see exactly where it came from, it wouldn't do any good as far as retraining my amygdala goes. Um, because my amygdala can't be told. It can't be, I can't be like, look amygdala, this is why we're afraid of heights and isn't that silly? And it's like, I really don't care what you're saying. This is what I've experienced. So the amygdala has to be updated. It has to get its um, information from lived experience. Uh, you know, for those of us who spend time with kids, um, who get to spend time with kids, we can often see, you can try and explain it to them until you're blue in the face, but oftentimes, you know, it's that whole idea, like, sometimes they just got to touch the stove, you know, and then they learn, then they learn. You can tell them until you're blue in the face and they're still going to keep making those attempts or putting themselves in these situations until finally 
it happens through action and then it stores very deeply and in a very real way. When we experience trauma, it affects the amygdala, causing it to shrink. Um, they found this in mass studies of veterans with PTSD, um, that there is a direct relationship to the size and volume of the amygdala and the experiences of trauma. And furthermore, that it's not static. You know, like if your amygdala has been shrunk due to trauma, it's not like that forever. It doesn't have to be. Um, meditation, daily meditation has been shown to help increase the volume of the amygdala again, get it back into proper functioning. Like we can absolutely come back from this. You know, neuroplasticity is incredible. Our brains, even though we do the majority of our growing, of our brains growing uh, from, you know, conception or from birth really all the way up through, um, well, yeah, the brain stops growing about our late 20s. It stops growing about your late 20s. But that doesn't mean it's all of a sudden is just frozen in place. It's still a shifting, changing thing. It's still capable of transformation. Meditation and including these new moon meditations are one of the ways that we can help rehabilitate the amygdala through experience, through the lived and embodied experience of peacefulness. To just stop for a minute, to just listen to oneself without judgment, without shame to make space for oneself, to make space for one's pain even, can do powerful things for us, even if it's just a little bit. Every now and then, you know, we all got to start somewhere. We're not going to, you know, wake up and like all of a sudden be like a Zen Buddhist monk. Like, that's a slow journey. <laughs> even if that's where you're headed, that's a slow journey. But it just starts in little pieces. If you have trauma, and if you can give yourself five minutes, set a five-minute timer. Just start there, something little. Shit, one minute. Shit, a moment. You know, like here, right now, you and me. Let's just take a few deep breaths. Allow the exhale to be longer than the inhale. Let yourself just see the light around you. Hear water flowing. Listen to the crickets and the birds and the traffic. Let yourself imprint just for a second. You know, that eternal moment, it's always with us. And then we can slip right back into the chaos of our human lives, right? You know, <laughs> it can be a pause like a bell ringing. That's okay. Because every time we do that, we're building experiences that our amygdala can learn from, that our inner child can benefit from, especially if that inner child is still holding wounds especially if they're still needing to protect themselves in some way. We've talked a lot about parts. You know, we talked about the internal family systems therapy, which looks at us as having a number of different parts. There's the self, right? The self, the natural leader of our system, um, but a part of us that is sometimes hard to uh, access, especially if we hold trauma. Um, but we have managers and we have firefighters, both of which are working to help protect us from the pain carried by exiles, right? All of these internal parts, our managers, our firefighters, the exiles too, are children parts. These are things that have come to us from childhood. 
Our exiles, often, are the hurt in our children. Some little piece, some fragment, clustered around those negative beliefs that triaged a moment of crisis and have stayed with us and we've calcified around them like a pearl sometimes. It's hard to unravel ourselves from these exiles, but not impossible. It just takes patience. Managers often are actually parentified in our children, you know, where we have to, maybe as a kid, we had to take care of other people. Maybe we had to take care of the people who were supposed to take care of us. And that internalized certain patterns. Parentification, in which a parent turns to a child for their emotional support, um, is a form of emotional abuse. It stresses the system of a child who's not supposed to be doing the caretaking, is not ready for that. The system, the nervous system, the body isn't prepared for that kind of a load. And so even though, you know, the sweet child wants nothing more than to make their parent or guardian feel safe and secure because that creates safety and security for the child. Um, it doesn't mean that they're actually capable of doing that in a way that isn't harmful to their nervous system. Maybe, maybe you came up with a parent who had mental health issues or addiction problems. Maybe you had younger siblings who were neurodivergent and needed extra care. Maybe when you were little, you were responsible for people that you should not have been actually responsible for. And you did the very best you could because you wanted to make a safe place for yourself so you could survive and reach a point where maybe one day you could heal and then thrive. But it taxes the system terribly. It stresses the amygdala. It creates insecurity in the environment and there's nothing more terrifying for a child, a little child's nervous system, than to live inside of an insecure space where you might not get your needs met then you gotta do what you gotta do. So that brings us to the firefighters. The firefighters are sometimes referred to as outer children. You know, we talk about the inner child. What about the outer child? You know, we ever have a bad day and you're like, I'm gonna eat a shit ton of ice cream. I'm gonna make a whole bunch of bad decisions. I'm gonna go get drunk. I'm gonna um, just buy myself whatever I wanna buy myself. I'm gonna just pop off and say whatever, the, whatever I wanna say without thought to anybody else's feelings. Like <laughs> the firefighter in us is just trying to do anything it can to quiet the activation of an exile, the activation of pain that's being held inside of us. Often, it's only looking for short-term solutions and not thinking about long-term consequences. Very much the mind of a child. So these managers, these firefighters, these exiles, they're all deeply rooted in our amygdala which allows us to process our big emotions and helps us to store memories. When we hold these traumas, it's an interruption in the amygdala's process and in the process of the thalamus that keeps us from being able to effectively process these memories and experiences in a way that they can be stored non-reactively inside of our nervous system instead of how them usually more stored is as a a live wire that gets buried, <laughs> you know, we just try and cover it up. But it always unearths itself. They always come back around. There was a time, if you have exiles and managers and firefighters, if you're here, <laughs> you know, you've got all these parts in your psychic system. And, and by that, I mean the system of your psyche. If these exist inside of you, we all have them, we all have parts, 
but some of us have parts that have had to take on extreme roles in order to protect us. It's just because there was a point in our lives when we didn't have enough body, we didn't have enough mind to protect ourselves. For ourself, the self, the natural leader of our system, was not able to protect us. We were too little. We were too small. We were too underdeveloped. The nervous system was too easily overwhelmed, you know? And so these parts lost trust in the self, had to take over. And they did what they had to do to keep us alive and to protect us. And if you're here listening, that means they did a good job. Even if there have been consequences from it, you're here. That's the part that matters because it's only if you're here do you get a chance to heal, to transform, to regenerate, to return to the self, to find that place of calm, courageous confidence that lies inside of you, a place of compassion. That's the self. That's who you are. That's who we all are. So when we're trying to reestablish the natural order of our system, okay, well, we do this through experience. We do this through meditational experiences, through lived experiences, like going over suspension bridges or, you know, whatever it takes to confront these things to live something different. During our new moon meditation, when we're here with the shadow, one of the things that I do, and I kind of want to add this layer in for those of you who are starting to develop this practice yourself. After I get a little sneak peek at who they're protecting, I like to ask them, and maybe I'm getting the shadow to ask the child they're protecting, you know, on my behalf, you don't want to deal with that kid directly. If they have protections up like the shadow, you need to honor that. But asking them, what can I do? What do you want me to do for you? Like, well, I'm here. I've got this body. I'm this grown up now. I'm big. I'm strong. I'm clever. Like, what do you need me to do? How can I enact and embody things to transform this space? What can I do to help? And I've been kind of surprised by the answers I've gotten because um, it's, it's sometimes they're really simple things. Um, a few months ago, I got the impulse of like, I want to go clean up a part of the creek. There's a little place, um, part of the creek, part of Mill Creek, right next to not far from where I live. I like to go there and sit there. And there's always garbage. And I heard a little voice, you know, just that little voice in that moment telling me like, I, I want to clean that place up. So I did. I, I'm not going to say it wasn't without a little bit of like mental hurdle. I definitely had some resistances to doing it. There was some pushback. I kept putting it off. But finally, I was able to kind of muster the energy, grab a bag and some gloves. And I went and I cleaned up and I felt incredible. It felt so good to just do this little act. And I, I know something kind of got unlocked in that moment. But I didn't even need to know what it was. I just felt the energy be freed inside of me. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. You know, it, it can be all kinds of things can emerge from that. Just like read a book, like I want to knit, you know, <laughs> like let's, let's go to the thrift store and find a shirt. Like who cares? Like there's going to be some little voice inside of you that's going to tell you what they need you to do. And the hardest thing in the world is to just listen and go, okay, 
yeah, great, I'll do that. You don't need to explain anything to me. I don't need to know why that's important. I just know that it is. I hear you. And there's an action, listening, listening to yourself. I'm not telling my amygdala what to do or how to function, but I'm listening to it speak to me. I'm hearing it and listening, active listening is a form of embodiment. It's something that the self can do. Each time we listen and then act on the things that we're told from these parts operating inside of us, we are helping to restructure our brain. We are making it a safer place for our inner child to exist. Because you know what? Those developmental neurons are always going to be there in my amygdala. They're going to be with me forever. Hopefully into incredible, decrepit old age, I will still have a little piece of my brain that has been functionally the same since I was just a little bit. We sometimes look at children, there's often this perspective that they're like underdeveloped versions of adults. Um, that they're just like little, I don't know, little, little worm primates that just need so much care and need us to decide and do everything for them. And, um, especially for those of us, I think, uh, you know, we're part of a bigger child-free generation than has maybe ever existed. Um, at least in, in my knowledge, at least to my knowledge. And so there's some perspectives about children and the work of having children in your life, um, that I think are a little bit backwards, a little bit outmoded. In, a, <laughs> in certain anarchist circles, there's the talk of what's called adult supremacy. Um, that adult supremacy is the first supremacy. It's the first cage that we get trapped in. The idea that as a child, you are underdeveloped, incapable, have nothing to really offer until you become, you cross some magical threshold into adulthood. And inside of adulthood, then we can become bound um, by the machinations of the system that we are living inside of and all the issues that come with that. Well, so the, the perspective outside of adult supremacy, like if we were to set down the shackles of adult supremacy, would cause us to shift, we would have to shift our perspective of children. Children are not, I mean, sure, okay, yeah, their bodies aren't done growing, their minds aren't done growing, but they also exist in, as a phase of our cycle. There is a wisdom and a brilliance and an energy and a creativity possessed only by children and only accessible in that space of childhood, at least to that degree, right? That they are a part of us in the same way that a caterpillar is part of the life cycle of a butterfly. It's not that a caterpillar is like inadequate at being a butterfly and we're just like patiently waiting for it to like do its thing um, and be awesome, like, and everything else before that sucks. Like, no, gosh, no. The caterpillar is just one of its phases. It's, it's no different than looking at a flower and then looking at a seed and going, well, you're worthless, you know? <laughs> like, you can't do anything for yourself. You have no value to me. Like, no, no, no. Children are just part of our process in the same way elders are part of our process as well as everything in between. These child parts of us, these child parts of our psyche um, are honestly the most ancient parts of our neural network. 
Your inner child is in fact the most ancient part of you. Think about that for a second. Think about those little neurons deep inside of your amygdala, the patterns of connection that they've developed. They have been with you since you were itty bitty. And they have been watching and experiencing and learning through experience this entire time. Your inner child is not your dependent. Your inner child is your connection to an ancient and primordial kind of wisdom. This adult mind, quote unquote adult mind, this mature mind is the new thing. It just showed up, you know? It's just figuring itself out. By comparison, my mature conception of self is, is the infant. <laughs> and my inner child is my elder. When my shadow does me the great honor of showing me a piece of my inner child that's still holding pain, I know that whatever work I can do, whatever I can embody, whatever I can walk forward for my whole system to address the needs, the unmet needs of that child to help triage the wounds that they carry, to help divest them of the negative self-beliefs that have kept them trapped in a timeless place of pain. Anything I can do, I am freeing to myself the greatest resources of wisdom I have available to me. Wisdom that has come from lived experience, wisdom that cannot be sullied by anyone's agenda on the outside. Nothing external can touch this place. And it is a place of incredible power. <laughs> I think it's why, you know, why the anarchists <laughs> have an eye on it have an eye on this place and this relationship to the self. My amygdala has no master, <laughs> you know? No gods, no masters, not for this little almond in my brain. It only knows what I've lived. It only knows the truth of my existence. It can't be told otherwise. It can be ignored. It can be suppressed. It can be traumatized and re-traumatized over and over again. And I have walked. I have walked those dark rituals and bore deep grooves into my psyche because of it. Because I couldn't see for so long. Doesn't mean anything is hopeless. Doesn't mean things can't change. <laughs> Here's a bridge. Oh, guys, let's walk on the bridge. <laughs> Safe and practice exposure to fear-inducing stimuli, y'all. Little by little, day by day. It seems to go really slowly for a while. And it will. But internal family systems therapy teaches us that when we do this work, when we engage in it in good faith, when we build enough, we call it self-energy, you know, just keep building that self-energy, we keep coming back to ourselves. We can hit a kind of critical threshold. And on the other side of it, healing can happen 
quickly, spontaneously, without our direct control, it can just happen. The transformation is possible. Like that moment when that caterpillar busts out of its cocoon and something that is still wholly the caterpillar, but completely transformed emerges. Thanks for going on this walk with me today. Until the next new moon, my blessings to the pain bearer.